Eric Roberts is a fucking man He's the greatest fucking actor since acting began We should give him every medal, every trophy and award He's the greatest fucking actor that you've ever seen or ever heard Have you heard about The Bird? It's episode number 54 of Eric Roberts is the Fucking Man, the world's most investigative Eric Roberts-related podcast. I'm Doug Tilly, and joining me as per usual is my hard-hitting co-host, Liam O'Donnell. How are things, Liam? They're pretty good, Doug. How are you? Liam, things are so great. It's the middle of summer here in Ontario where I live, and it's sweltering, Liam. What do you think about the heat, Liam? I mean, I assume if it's sweltering in Canada, that's like a solid 60, 65 degrees, right? I don't know what that is. <laughs> All right, because you're at Celsius. Yeah. Oh, get fucked. <laughs> All of our measurements are superior here in uh, God's country, God and Queen's country, as I like to call it here in Canada. Um, but yeah, no, it's actually sweltering. Very, very warm. Very humid here in this p- part of Ontario. Do you love humidity, Liam? You look like you would love it. Oh, I look like I would. Uh-huh. You Canadians always think you can do this soft racism. Yeah, and, and we do. We'll just go over fine. Um, so actually, funny enough, uh, Pennsylvania is pretty humid. Uh, at least my part, the, the uh, eastern end of Pennsylvania, tends to be pretty humid. Um, it's worse in Philly than it is up where I am at now. But uh, but the whole area is kind of known for its humidity. And uh, I, I'm kind of ambiguous. on Like, I, I don't mind heat. But humidity, it doesn't bother me as much as apparently it does some people, but I, I don't like it. I'm not, like, enjoying it when it's humid. Now, Liam, uh, we've been discussing some exciting probabilities, possibilities for the future of this show this week. I'm glad that you and I have been in touch because, frankly, and people don't know this. I'm pulling back the curtain a little bit. We don't often talk about this show uh, outside of when we're recording. You know, that's actually true. Um, you helped me. People may or may not know this, but you helped me a lot with Cinepunks, with the website, uh, and you occasionally let me know, like, this is the guest, and <laughs> these, these are the movies, this is the night, so you better be ready, jerk. Yeah. And that's that's about most of our communication. Yeah, it's mostly, and I mean, I don't say it, I mean, I think you're reading a tone into what I'm writing that maybe I didn't intend, but I mean, it's fairly accurate. Uh, I do say to you, this is the guest, here are the movies we'll be covering, then like 24 hours before the show records, I'm like, here is the outline of the show, and then we record the show. So really, I mean, the expectations on you are very limited, wouldn't you say, Liam? Yeah, I play a very small role in this whole thing. Well, that's great. I mean, it's great in some ways because I like I like the hands-off approach. Uh, unless I'm getting a massage, Liam, and then I like the hands-on approach. What do you think? <laughs> what? Sure, yeah, no, that's that's great. Liam, uh, we have a bit of a different format on this episode of Eric Roberts is the Fucking Man. In fact, it's a very, very different format, as listeners of the show who've uh, looked at the title of this episode have already probably figured out. We have an extremely special guest. Now, we usually have a special guest, and I'm not knocking how special the guests we've had already on this show are, but I think it's safe to say that this is an extremely super special guest we have today. This is the most special guest we've had up to this point. And in fact, to understand why we have this special guest, it requires me to tell a story. What do you think, Liam? I'm into stories. 
Well, this story, uh, it actually reaches back to uh, episode number 51 of the podcast, which featured Mike White from the Projection Booth podcast. And we covered uh, two features on that show. Uh, and one of them was La Cucaracha from 1998. You might re- re- remember that, Liam. Only vaguely. Vaguely. Well, that's fine. I mean, you certainly, <laughs> you certainly won't need to know it for anything I'm about to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, it just went through the grapevine, uh, that, that wonderful internet-style grapevine that's out there. Uh, and the episode ended up getting into the ears of one Mr. Jack Perez, the director of La Cucaracha, uh, which thankfully we were very complimentary about because it's a terrific movie. Um, and Jack got in contact with me via Twitter and I asked him if he wanted to be on the show. And what did he say, Liam? He confusingly said yes. Yeah. I mean, it took a lot of – basically, I had to say, no, I'll keep Liam out of the way. I'll shuffle him to the side. I won't sure. let him ask any questions. <laughs> right. I was wondering why you nixed all my, my very probing questions into his seedy past. Well, I did mention to him that you apparently just barely remember a movie we watched like two weeks ago. <laughs> What? I, I love uh, this movie. The What is it again? The Cockroach? Yeah. The Cockroach from 1998. Yeah, it's real, it's real good. No, I actually do remember it. Uh, it sticks out partly, as you said, because we liked it. Yeah. Uh, we, we've done so many movies that uh, some are really bad and some are just not great. And this one uh, fell into an interesting category of not just because it was good, because we've covered some good movies, but it was good and we didn't know it. Right. Um, a few of the really good movies we have covered, we knew going in we were probably going to like the movie. And we have to be on our best behavior today, Liam. Oh. Well, we're talking to a professional, a professional director. And I'm not saying this uh, flippantly or lightly at all. This is a man who's directed a number of uh, really wonderful movies. In fact, just yesterday, I rewatched Some Guy Who Kills People uh, from a few years back, from 2011. Uh, and I just it just reminded me how fucking great that movie is and in fact Liam I believe you watched it as well I did I was actually uh pretty largely unfamiliar with it and uh watching it was a again a big surprise uh not because I expected it to not be good but it was really great uh and I didn't know that I I was kind of surprised I hadn't heard about it before then I I uh I did a kind of an unfortunate thing which is yesterday I watched a double feature of America's Deadliest Home Video which was the first movie directed by Jack Perez, and then I watched Some Guy Who Kills People, and I ended up loving both of them, and it made me a lot more intimidated to do this interview than I was <laughs> previously, uh, because uh, now, the the really, the three movies I've watched by Jack Perez, I've really liked all three of them, and I think he's incredibly talented, and uh, now I don't know, Liam, what if, uh, what if we choke when we have to talk to this professional gentleman? Have you, uh, are these the only movies you've watched, or have you watched some of these other films? I have not. Now, uh, we should go quickly over Jack's uh, filmography for those who might not be as familiar with it. At least we'll hit the highlights. He, uh, America's Daily's Home Video, by the way, is a, uh, it, it's very much a precursor to the sort of found footage, um, um, point of view style movies that have become very popular since the Blair Witch Project, uh, very much in the mold of Man Bites Dog. If you've ever seen that movie, have you seen that one, Liam? I have actually. And it's pretty great, right? Yeah, it's really good. Well, you can really see a lot of, and in fact, America's Deadliest Home Video was actually made before Man Bites Dog, but it's it's kind of a very similar concept where uh, a gentleman, in this case played by Danny Bonaducci, yeah, for real, uh, he ends up uh, being uh, – he was taking a road trip uh, after his wife cheats on him, and he gets kidnapped by this uh, roving 
gang of, of thieves who uh, force him to come along for the ride and all the kind of uh, hijinks that, that come into play there. It's kind of a, a comedy, satire. Uh, there's some horrific elements. It's really something else. From there, he ended up going uh, and, and um, working with the Hercules, the Legendary Journeys franchise, and the Xena Warrior Princess franchise. Uh, and in fact, uh, for fans of uh, the kind of background of that franchise with Sam Raimi and things like that, it might, they might be interested to know that he uh, became friends at one point with John, Be- uh, sorry, with Josh Pecker, the, uh, the director of Thou Shalt Not Kill Except and Running Time. And in fact, uh, Jack has a cameo or, or at least a small appearance as a fake champ in Running Time. It's all right, Liam. Just stay quiet. Why else? <laughs> I, I, uh, you paused at a moment where I was like, "What am I supposed to say about that?" I want, I want you to, add, I want you to be impressed for one thing by my skills at researching these goddamn things. <laughs> I'm unfamiliar with everything you just said, except for "Thou Shall Not Kill," except which I really like. Uh, well, then he went on to do uh, two films with uh, James McManus as the writer. Uh, one of them was The Big Empty, and then he followed that up with La Cucaracha, which is the movie that we saw. And in fact, uh, James is actually in that as, uh, as an actor as well. Oh. He, he played the, the very interesting role of uh, Louis Graves in that movie, as sure. you might recall. Uh, now, th- have you seen The Big Empty? I, I have not. I'm very curious about it. Me too, especially after seeing La Cucaracha. My understanding is it's very noirish, just like La Cucaracha is to some extent. And uh, I'm, I'm curious to, to find out how that relationship came about as well. He would later go on to do the sequel to Wild Things, uh, Wild Things 2, uh, on a sort of a, a work-for-hire basis. He followed it up with Monster Island, which was a TV movie, uh, sort of a tribute to old monster movies from the 50s. And that movie has uh, Carmen Electra and... Mary Elizabeth Winstead, and Adam West. And I do want to ask him about Adam West since he unfortunately has recently passed away. Uh, he's done a couple of, of um, horror movies under aliases or pseudonyms. 666 The Child from 2006, Megashark versus Giant Octopus in 2009. Then that led into Some Guy Who Kills People in 2011, which really is a wonderful movie that you should check out. He did a short uh, in an attempt to get into the uh, ABCs of Death compilation series t is for tantrum with paul f tompkins and his wife uh, and i want to ask him about that as well and uh, since then he's been doing some tv movies destruction las vegas from 2013 the family lamp in 2016 and drone wars with parker lewis himself in it from 2016 uh, and i think he's been doing some teaching lately as well liam oh uh, do we know where we, i'm sure we can find out you know why because we're going to be talking to the guy in just a little bit what is this unusual suspect show? I don't know anything about that. I do not know about it, and you're looking at the same thing I am, but I didn't mention the name, so that's going to be very confusing to the people listening to the show. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Sorry. <laughs> uh, apparently, uh, Unusual Suspect uh, is a TV series that's been running since 2010 and is currently in its ninth season, and I have never heard of it before. Huh. Interesting. But he, he uh, directed one episode of that called Lori Hayes. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Or co-directed the episode. Uh, I mean, we can talk about that if you want, Liam. You can always jump in with any uh, anything that crosses your mind. I mean, this is your show. I'm just the dancing monkey. You you don't dance very well sometimes. I gotta say, Liam. <laughs> you gotta work it, man. I never said I was good at dancing. No, that's true. You never did. All you said was, I am willing to do a blood oath to cover the works and life of one Mr. Eric Roberts. And to that, I mean, I, I have no complaints. I mean... 
It would go better if you weren't always playing the polka. Who can dance to the polka? Oh, I see. Uh, actually, lots of people can. And I, I imagine at least half our audience is a little offended by the fact that you suggested otherwise. Sure. <laughs> All right, Liam, enough about Jack Perez for now. We're going to get back to him in our interview in just a little bit. Right now, we need to talk about the latest Eric Roberts news on The Roberts Report. It's The Roberts Report for episode number 54 of Eric Roberts is the fucking man. And uh, we will start, as per usual, with a deep dive into the Eric Roberts Twitter feed. He is on Twitter, at Eric Roberts, all one word. Just recently, Eric Roberts tweeted, The brilliant mom of Serena Williams, Venus Williams, is so right about the much ado about nothing. Hashtag grunting. Do you know what this is in regards to, Liam? I guess this is when they hit the ball, they grunt, like crazy grunt. Like, I, I don't know, I've never really watch much tennis but that's the feeling i get yeah that's what I, I honestly i haven't heard about this latest i don't know if there's another I've, I've read articles in the past about people complaining about women uh tennis players making uh grunting noises and i don't know why they would complain especially where in this case you're talking about two of the greatest uh tennis players of all time so if they're grunting then they must be doing something right i just don't know why it would matter for any i mean i guess is the idea that tennis is supposed to be like a like a dignified sport, so you're not supposed to exert yourself. I mean, maybe at least the 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 audible sounds of that exertion uh, bother some people. I honestly, uh, just like Eric Roberts is agreeing with here, it does sound like much ado about nothing. Um, that said, if you close your eyes while watching female tennis, it does sound like um, sex, some sort of sex that involves someone making like a sound every once in a while. Huh. Mm-hmm. I mean, that could be very true. I, I've never watched. I wouldn't say never. I very, I very rarely watch tennis, so I don't really have an opinion about either the grunting or the appropriateness of the grunting. Now, what is your sport of choice, Liam? You know, I'm not really a big sport person. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's not, uh, if I don't go somewhere and someone else is watching it, I would probably go most of the year having not watched a single sport right. or sporting event. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I had to choose, like, okay, we're going to watch something. Um I don't know, probably soccer. I, I don't mind soccer so much. I don't think it's it's too much work for me to keep up with it. Soccer. Um, oh, you mean football. <laughs> yes, I mean football. <laughs> well, uh, I, I mean, that's fine. I mean, I should call it football because American football should be called hand egg. But it, it is what it is. Oh, shit, uh, Liam. You're really, you're really uh, scraping uh, American football over the coals here on this episode. I know. So tough. I'm a real edge lord when it comes to sports. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, it, what's funny enough is like if it's on in the background, I don't mind necessarily any sport. I mean, uh, baseball seems kind of pointless, but it's fun. You know, it doesn't bother me per se. I've just never been able to get excited about any particular sport. Uh, at least not yet. I haven't found one yet. On July 12th, uh, on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, he had Joe Scarborough, the political commentator, on, who announced that he's leaving the GOP to become an independent. Uh, And he had an interview on the show. Eric responded to the announcement from The Late Show that he was going to do this with, Well, Mom Eliza Roberts, which is Eliza Roberts' Twitter feed, is loving the deep blue color of Mika's dress, and we agree, it's a sad time making for lots of funny material. Agree or disagree, Liam? I, it's definitely a sad time. 
It is. And there is a small amount of funny material being made. But for me, the sadness still outweighs the funny material. It, um, I find compared to previous administrations uh, and the humor being made at their expense, I find that all of it now comes with either with a tinge of sadness or almost a little tinge of fear for me, simply because of the consequences that uh, seem to be um, possible every single day, you know, especially with healthcare and everything related to that and how important that is. I mean, it, it really, it's hard to relax and be like, ha, it's so funny that Trump did something stupid when it's like, literally, there are people who are going to die because they can't get the care they need. Yeah, but I, I agree with that. And that is the, my anxiety. But, you know, I laughed a lot during Bush's presidency. And while his domestic policies weren't quite the cluster right. that Trump's are. But internationally, it, right. His internationally, he was killing just, you know, far more people. So uh, so that just sort of shows my bias. And I, I, I'm not saying that to disagree with you, because it is true. Like, wh when things are funny now, it, there, it is tinged with sadness uh, more than it has been in the past. But that's just because it affects me more. So I yeah. have to acknowledge a little bit like my selfishness in that. Yeah, I could see that actually entirely. And also, you know, I guess our political acumen has probably developed a little bit over the last few years. So, um, No, I've always been awesome. Yeah, okay. Well, Mr. Awesome, could you stop moving shit around on that end? Because it sounds like you're, uh, you're falling over your own microphone. I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. What was that? I said, shut up, Liam. <laughs> <laughs> Here's some news for you, Liam. Oh. Medina, the first ever sci-fi television series from the Middle East to premiere at Comic-Con. Uh, this is an article from July 11th, and uh, at the time that we're speaking, I believe Comic-Con is just about to begin, uh, just this weekend. So this is a TV series called Medina, an original series by Middle Eastern filmmaker Ahmed Al-Baker, developed and realized by the creative team whose credits include Jigsaw, Piranha 3D, Caprica, 12 Monkeys, Ghoulies? <laughs> what? Battlestar Galactica, Fallen, Drone, Smallville, and A Good Day to Die Hard. This mind-bending series, partly set in a near-future Qatar, begins after a rocket designed to disperse thousands of metric tons of sulfur dioxide into Earth's stratosphere to offset the greenhouse effect that has caused the global warming crisis inexplicably fails and crashes. In the subsequent aftermath, we are introduced to an international cast of survivors, both human and human-like. As they face monsters, nightmares, parallel realities, and their own personal demons, these heroes must decide what is most important. Survival? Legacy? Love? Now, uh, we mentioned in previous episodes that uh, Eric Roberts has been spending a lot of time in Qatar lately, Liam. It looks like this is why. Yeah, it sounds kind of interesting. I mean, um, the plot is a little uh, not my favorite. Like, I always feel weird about these science-gone-wrong plots because right. I want... I want the science that has gone wrong to be something that was a bad idea in the first place. Sure. So the, the idea that's like, we'll solve global warming. Oh, no, now we've ruined all human life is like not my favorite per se. On the other hand, anything reality bending, I'm willing to at least give a chance to um, because I, I just like that sort of storytelling. I'm also curious about the cast for this TV show, which includes um, uh, Tamo Pinnaket. I'm sure I'm fucking up the pronunciation there. Uh, he was in Battlestar Galactica. I was, was really good in that, actually. It also has sci-fi icon Natasha Henstridge, Liam. Now, do you know who this is? I mean, I've seen Species, but I, other than Species, I don't really know much about her. Well, I'll tell you one important thing about her, Liam. Oh, okay. She is from the lovely island of Newfoundland, Canada, where I'm from. That can't be possible because she doesn't look like a mutant. I know, but yet... There she is. You know who also is from the lovely island of Newfoundland, Canada? No idea. Shannon Tweed. 
Who is that? Shannon Tweed, the uh, partner of Gene Simmons. And a uh, former, uh, she's been in a lot of erotic cinema. Okay. So, you know, we have a lot of beautiful, vivacious young women come from the <laughs> of Newfoundland. The other person that you should be interested in in the cast of Medina is Eric Roberts, star of The Dark Knight and The Expendables. They're always going to bring that up. No one's ever like Star of Runaway Train. It's always Dark Knight and the Expendables. Uh, some of these cast members are going to be at Comic Con, where they're going to be showing, I guess, some footage from the series and showing off some of the uh, the sets and uh, and props as well. And hopefully, we'll be hearing more about that over the next week. Liam, do you like horror movies? You know I do, Doug. You I know, know you I do. do. Well, do you know what Fright Fest is? So is that that's the thing in uh, is that in London? It's in jolly old London. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I I think I follow someone who runs it on social media. Well, from August 24th to 29th uh, of this year, they will be having Fright Fest in London, UK. And at that event, they'll be doing the worldwide premiere of the film The Terror of Hallow's Eve. Uh, and this is from the director Todd Tucker, who uh, did special effects makeup work on projects like Watchmen and G.I. Joe Retaliation and Ouija 2. Uh, and producer Ronald L. Halvis. Now... The fact is, Eric Roberts does a lot of low-budget horror movies. You know that, Liam. I know it. But this one looks like it could be something uh, a bit of a cut above, don't you think? Well, what? Wh- why do you? Why do you feel that way? I'm not sure. I, I don't know one way or the other. Well, for one thing, the cast is a little bit more interesting than you normally would get. For one thing, we have uh, Doug Jones is in this. Sure. Uh, Juliet Landau from uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer is in this. Mm. It does feature music from John Carpenter on the soundtrack. Oh, yes, 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 I see that. See, see? And honestly, you know, it's always a bit of a crapshoot when these makeup artists uh, take the helm. But at the very least, you are likely to get a strong-looking movie, at least on the makeup end. But usually just kind of visually in general, you get something interesting. It might not carry through to the storytelling aspect. But I'm very, very curious about The Terror of Hollow's Eve. Well, I mean, we're going to have to watch it regardless, so. Yeah, why is that? Um, I don't know. Some, something we did. What is that called again? Um, something like a little blood oath? Blood oath. Another important piece of Eric Roberts news. We have an interview with entertainment professional, Koo. Do you remember Koo, Liam? Uh, he directed something Eric Roberts is in. Not quite. Crap. Then I have no idea who Q is. For one thing, it's not a uh, male. It's a female actress. Though also a director and writer. Oh, I don't know who this person is. Well, Koo was in a little movie called Dark Moon Rising. Yes, now I remember. Oh, Lord. And a couple of episodes ago, we mentioned another project called Dark Cupid, a romantic comedy where her character is named Elle. Uh, And as she produced, directed, and starred in it, she says here in this interview, the other lead actress was Deanna Congo as Kit, who also stars in Alien, Reign of Man. What is Alien, Reign of Man? I literally don't know what that is. So in this movie, her character was kicked out due to bad behavior. Kicked out of heaven, I suppose. She is then warned by G, played by Eric Roberts. If she doesn't change, she will never regain her wings. Not heeding his words, Elle goes around shooting unsuspected people with her special guns because she believes bow and arrows are outdated. She dresses the way she wants and acts the way she wants. These guns shoot its target with a temporary truth serum that makes people reveal what they truly feel for Elle. True love is matched with falsity and personal gain, and she wants to save those tainted souls and cleanse them. What do you think, Liam? Dark Cupid, uh, directed, written, and starring Koo. 
I mean, we're going to watch it. K-H-U. Uh, Featuring just... Eric Roberts as G. <laughs> I, I, I've just been looking up trying to figure out what this alien rate of man thing is. All right. If you do find out, please let us know. Uh, yeah, directed and... by Justin Price. <laughs> but you may know from Dark Moon Rising. Oh, is that alien movie really by Justin Price? Oh, yes. Oh, so he made a movie called Alien? <laughs> No, it's called Alien Rate of Man. Okay. So he can't get sued. Okay, because in the context of what is being said here, it looks like a- the movie was named Alien uh, um, with a subtitle of Reign of Man. Right, but in the thing on IMDb, they make it all one sentence. Well, I don't care to watch that. <laughs> is, is Eric Roberts in it? Eric Roberts is not in it. Oh, never have to watch it. Yippee! <laughs> Horse film takes on human trafficking, Liam. <laughs> oh! Wow, human trafficking already. Wow, okay, let's get into it. The 168 Film Festival announced today that on Saturday, August 26th, it will screen the Victory Over Human Trafficking feature film Unbridled, starring T.C. Stallings, uh, Eric Roberts from The Dark Knight in the Pope of Greenwich Village, and T. McKay. Unbridled is based on true stories of at-risk teens assisted by equine therapy at a North Carolina nonprofit ranch called Coral... Riding Academy. Coral. You know, like that? Coral. <laughs> the film shot in Raleigh, North Carolina, which is situated along the infamous I-95 corridor. Why is this in this fucking press release? A gateway to traffickers. Oh, that's why. Sex trafficking is estimated to involve hundreds of thousands of victims in all 50 states, including many children. It may be the fastest growing criminal industry at $9 billion per year. Seems like pretty serious territory, Liam. Will it stumble or will it um, triumphantly jump over its obstacles like a racing horse would? I mean, I want it to be great because Eric Roberts is in it, but uh, I don't know. Well, I I, I care very much about human trafficking, um, but I don't know if this is the, the way to handle it. Let me tell you a little more about it. In the film, Sarah, T. McKay, escapes from her mother's uh, maniacal boyfriend, Roger, played by Eric Roberts. As Sarah begins to heal at the academy, she learns to trust humans again by bonding with Dreamer, a badly abused horse that no one can touch. Roger will stop at nothing to get her back under his control. Sounds like Eric Roberts plays a primo douchebag in this movie. Yeah. I mean, I kind of like him in the the, the douchebag role, so that might be all right. Is that your favorite kind of Eric Roberts role where he's playing like a sleazy asshole? No, I mean, uh, well, well, there's different versions of the sleazy asshole. There's the Mm -hmm. like very uh, kind of possessed, self-possessed sleazy asshole. Sure. Uh, Then there's the slightly unhinged. I kind of like the unhinged sleazy asshole because it gives him opportunities to really like freak out. But um, I don't know. I, I, I... I kind of like Charming Dad. He does that a lot. You know, right. like, the oh, I don't even know what's going on here. I'm a dad sort of thing. Um, but I kind of also really like, like in La Cucaracha, his more peon roles. You sure. Know? His sort of like uh, kowtowing uh, lackey roles. I kind of like those as well. I do like him when he's a fast talking sleazeball who's over his head. Yeah, exactly. And he's kind of overwhelmed. Yeah, yeah exactly. Right. And he you know, doesn't know what to trust. He doesn't know what to do. Maybe someone is trying to kill him. Maybe a lot of people are trying to kill him. That's I don't like him as Mr. Cool. That's just not my my thing. It's not my favorite. No, maybe it's because I'm not Mr. Cool. What do you think about that, Liam? Well, I mean, there's a lot of ways that you're not Eric Roberts. So I don't know if we should focus on that. Well, let's list a couple of them since we have a little bit of time here. Uh, OK, um, number one. 
Uh, Eric Roberts is very reminiscent of a cat. How, how so? He's very live and unpredictable. Mm, I see what you're saying. While yeah. I, of course, have the rough features of a bulldog. Yeah, yeah, we'll go with that. That sounds right. All right, list one more. Um, He is famous. Okay, well, that's offensive, but absolutely true. Uh, that uh, and it honestly makes me feel a little bad, but uh, but maybe maybe it, that's the kind of bop on the nose I needed to keep myself from comparing myself to the man himself. I mean, I'm okay. Like if if on an episode I can you know offend you at least once, then that's pretty good. Fair enough. Recently added to the ever expanding Eric Roberts IMDb page is 2017's. Amoros de Peso, directed by Luis Estrada, an incredibly prolific uh, Spanish-language low-budget director. He directed 2003's El Malamadre with cult classic actor Hugo Stiglitz. Uh, this one's a comedy, though actually if you look through his filmography, most of his movies seem to be action-oriented. But he's directed something like like 20 movies, but they're all Spanish-language. In this movie, Eric Roberts plays a character named Mr. Peters. Also stars uh, Cesar De La Torre. Uh, Johnny Ray Diaz, uh, Lou Pizarro, Vince Romo. A lot of actors I've never heard of before, but that doesn't mean that they're not great actors or that they are not well-known in uh, in uh, Spanish-speaking countries. Now, I don't know the plot, and I don't know how the hell we're going to watch it, Liam, since a U.S. release might never actually happen, but we will. And why is that? The Blood Oath. The Blood Oath, which we are bo- bound by for uh, the rest of our days, I would say, Liam. Yeah, for a while, at least. For a while, at least. Liam, we're going to take our first break. And when we return, we're just jumping right to the main event. We're going to talk to a famous, beloved movie director, Jack Perez, the director of La Cucaracha. Why don't we uh, take a few minutes, uh, compose ourselves, and when we return, the interview will begin. What do you think, Liam? Sounds good to me, man. All right, let's do it. We'll be back right after this. We're here with Jack Perez, who's uh, been kind enough to take some time out of his very busy schedule uh, to talk to us about his career and about La Cucaracha, which we, uh, of course, featured just a few episodes ago on Eric Roberts is the fucking man. Now, Jack, the first thing I want to ask you, and this might seem like a strange question, is on your IMDb page, which I know are notoriously inaccurate, it says that you have an acting credit as a a bouncer in Missing in Action. Is this true? (laughs) Yeah, that's the only... No, unfortunately, <laughs> sadly, sadly it isn't. I mean, I think I was probably, I must have been in high school <laughs> when Missing in Action came out. So I would have been like, you know, I would have been like a 14-year-old bouncer. Uh, it's a great credit. I don't know how the hell it happened. It's sort of been there for 20 years. And I, I don't know if I ever just, I don't think I ever bothered to take it off just because it was so crazy. I might as well, you know, why not leave it there? But that is unfortunately inaccurate. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I mean, I'm such a, you know, I'm, I'm pretty short. 
and definitely not muscle. You know, I definitely, you know, but bulging with muscles. I don't know how the hell I would be a bouncer in some Thai, you know, bar where they sell guns. You know, it just doesn't make any sense. But I, I kind of like it. <laughs> uh, anyway, I, so I, I figured it was unlikely, but I'm. I, I'll tell you what. Never remove it. <laughs> I'll always have that. Please, I'll leave it because it's a. Why not? You know. Why not? But I think that I think truthfully is probably the only um, inaccuracy. We'll we'll get to one of the other acting credits in just a moment. I, I was just mentioning before we started recording that uh, that I had watched America's Deadliest Home Video, your first feature, uh, uh, just yesterday, uh, actually on a double feature with one of your other movies, and I really enjoyed it. Again, it's the kind of movie that really is up my alley, and it's uh, so impressive, uh, especially considering the time it was made and sort of it being the forebearer of a lot of, of the similar kinds of movies that came afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, what I noticed most about it, Jack, is that uh, that even the dated elements of it, they seem yeah. kind of prescient. I mean, you know, now with cell phone recording and viral videos, you could almost remake America's Deadliest Home Video in kind of a very similar form without losing a lot of the kind of thematic elements of it. I agree. I mean, I totally agree. And, and then thank you again. That's very kind. Um, yeah, I think, you know, at the time when I made it, you know, it was really kind of the camcorder boom. Uh, and the only real sort of verite television show was Cops. You know, there really wasn't anything else at that time that was sort of approximating this kind of documentary look, which became so pervasive uh, in the years that followed. So, um, you know, I think it really, with America's Deadly Home Video, it really started with this idea of trying to do something in the first person, uh, like a diary. And obviously, you know, with the advent of of uh, vlogging and certainly, like you said, with with cell phone proliferation and cell phone video, it is. It's sort of like it's happening all over again. But at the time when camcorders, you know, this is 1990, camcorders were really, you know, becoming, every, everybody had one. And so experimentation and people filming themselves having sex and doing these diaries was all kind of new and kind of coupling that with um, sort of cops vibe. I thought it might be interesting to do it, you know, take the old sort of criminals on the run road movie and, and apply that, uh, that look, that aesthetic to it. So that's really what it came, you know, what it came from. But I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I'm, I'm surprised there isn't actually more real documentation of, I mean, I'm sure there is, there is obviously, but, um, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It's sort of like it's just it's to repeat. You know, the time is like looping or something. It's especially. I think it's especially. Um, you know, watching it just now in this kind of climate, it's a kind of affecting and interesting. I mean, when I think about, you know, there was there's been murders that have been live streamed on Facebook Live and things like that. It just seems, you know, that that you you saw this coming all that all those years ago. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's. It's um, it's sort of like the thing you hear in network, you know, network, you know, Patty Chayefsky's network. And when you look at it, you hear Faye Dunaway pitching all these shows, which at the time was just such, you know, was such satire. And it's all come to pass, you know, um, all these kind of insane, you know, I mean, I always joked where it was going would be, um, you know, I guess what ultimately ended up in the running man or something where you basically take death row prisoners, you know, people that were basically going to be executed and you have them do like gladiatorial battles at the death on live pay-per-view with the winner being pardoned, you know, and that was the joke. And I can still see that sort of coming, mm. you know, mm. that's, that's not like out of the realm of possibility considering how, how insane 
you know, television is. I can't remember which comic did it. I can't remember if it was Pat Oswald or somebody said something like, at a certain point, you're gonna, there's going to be this white wall on the horizon because you can't make a reality show out of everything. Mm. And I think that's where it's gone, you know. But in the 90s, it was still pretty novel to sort of document your own life. Um, so now it's just, you know, it's just what everybody does. And, you, you know, Facebook and Twitter, it's just a constant, you know, kind of self-publicizing world so it's interesting it's very interesting you know you know the movie that uh, america's deadliest home video most reminded me of and i'm sure i'm not the first person to say this is the french film man bites dog but of course you made your film first even though yeah. uh you know i guess it, it maybe the the wider release came a couple of years after you first filmed it i was wondering yeah. what, what was your response when you first saw man bites dog were you like well, oh my god <laughs> yeah yeah it's, it's it's sort of like you know it's sort of it's funny. I'm sure I'm not the only. I know I'm not the only filmmaker that experiences this. It's almost. It's always when you're on the edge of what you think is completely an innovative breakthrough. Nobody's going to do it. Move that somebody actually does sort of the same thing. Um, and so, I mean, I was surprised, but I wasn't entirely surprised that while I was doing what was I what I considered, um, you know, a, a new concept or relatively new concept in that climate, that Man Bites Dog would come out soon afterwards i mean but it's a good movie it's a great movie and um you know like i said i think you know there were definitely earlier examples i mean i was inspired by a film called uh, 84 charlie mopic which i don't know if you saw that which is essentially a, a vietnam combat film from the perspective of, of a combat um cameraman and so the whole picture is basically following a platoon in vietnam and this was shot in 16 millimeter and i believe the filmmaker had actually served so it had a very intimate first person um perspective on the subject and you know that was certainly an influence on me and that came before you know i did that so you know you always draw from other people who've done it either before you or in some way differently and also as i was saying earlier you know the first person point of view thing um i had always read about how orson wells had tried to make to try to make Heart of Darkness as his first feature. Mm -hmm. And that his plans for that movie was to shoot it entirely in the first person, with Marlowe essentially being the camera. And that it was basically abandoned because, you know, the equipment at the time was just really too big and cumbersome to do what essentially would be handheld or steadicam stuff through the jungle. So they threw that away. So that was inspiring, this idea of trying to take a genre that you've seen a million times, but look at it at it differently. I think the difference with Man Bites Dog was that was essentially, you know, a serial killer movie or a horror film. Right. Uh, whereas mine was more of a, a noir, I guess you could call it, or a road movie. And in fact, that there's a, uh, a common theme of noir throughout a lot of, I think, at least what I call your more personal movies. I think I read in an interview before that, that you mentioned Lady in the Lake, the Philip Marlowe movie, as an influence as well. Definitely, same thing. You know, it's it's definitely... You know, when you look at those movies, you look at Lady in the Lake, and Lady in the Lake is kind of, like, hard to watch. Even the, like, the first half of um, Dark Passage with uh, Humphrey mm -hmm. Bogart very much in this first person. And you can see the limitations. I mean, you know, obviously the problem with first person, and I guess, you know, a, a later example, or just like last year, was what, Hardcore Henry? Right. You know, when you, take this, when you take this first person perspective, what you're doing for the most part is eliminating the emotions of the main character, which can be definitely a drawback um mm. you know and so you know when i think about it 
America's Deadly Swim video, you know, definitely ha- is more of a formal exercise. You know, it was an attempt to do something new because that's what you want to do when you're kind of coming out of the gate with your first feature. But looking at it now, you know, I, you know, it's hard to watch because it's the first feature, and like all filmmakers, all you do is see, you know, where you blew it. Um, but uh, in response to what you were saying earlier, I think noirs have always been my favorite genre. Thrillers have always been my favorite genre, and I really try. You know, if I had my choice, that's the genre I would basically live in. You know, that's my that's sort of my favorite world to explore. Now, you went from America's Deadliest Home Video. In the, in the mid-90s, you did some writing and directing on Hercules' The Legendary Journeys and Xeno right. Warrior Princess. I right. was wondering, you know, I guess this, I'm sure you get asked this a lot as well. Do you have any Kevin Sorbo stories that you can share with us? <laughs> you know, what's funny is Kevin was such like, you know, he was so, at least in those days, he was very much like Hercules. <laughs> you know, he was kind of like this, almost this Clark Kent kind of, this sweet normal guy um so i didn't really you know i didn't really uh you know there wasn't anything you know terribly exciting except he was really cool to work with i think one of the things i did i remember which was fun was that he seized upon is i kind of stole an old john wayne moment where you know after he you know hercules takes down some assassin the assassin you know covertly tries to go for his knife and there's an old John Wayne, you know, response when somebody goes for a gun and Wayne goes, you know, I wouldn't, you know, that's his whole thing. And I told Kevin to just ad lib that. And he was just so excited to be able to do, you know, to have his John Wayne moment. But certainly nothing scandalous, you know, unfortunately. Um, you know, it was actually a lot cooler with um, with Lucy, you know, doing the pilot for Xena because... You know, it was really cool to watch this person who was essentially just like a local farm girl, you know, grow into this like, you know, this movie star, this television star, because she was like, she was a local hire who was essentially like an Amazon in one of the Hercules movies, who was a last minute replacement, as most people know, for an American actress that was supposed to be the part. And she kind of just stepped up into it and just went for it. And it just obviously changed her life but everyone on that show was really cool you know i was i was really young when i did it and very intimidated and everybody on it was very cool now you did some writing with josh becker on uh, on xena is that correct yeah josh i met when i was doing i started on hercules doing the tv movies which were before the series mm-hmm. i did the second unit action sequences on on one called hercules in the circle of fire and josh was directing one of those movies i think it was the maze of the minotaur if i'm not mistaken <laughs> and uh and josh was a hardcore movie nut and he was you know it was mostly new zealanders down there only a handful of americans so uh when i met josh he was a hardcore movie geek like i am and we really hit it off and so we became friends and then yeah later we collaborated on uh, one of the episodes which was chariots of war <laughs> you know and the whole the whole thing with hercules and xena was always about trying to take plots or plot elements from favorite genre films, whether they're a lot of Westerns. Um, you know, you'd say like, oh, the, let's, take, let's take the plot of Hondo and we'll just make it for Hercules instead of John Wayne or what have you. And Chariots of War was definitely, you know, just cool because you got chariots, you know, certainly inspired by Ben-Hur anytime you saw a chariot race. So um, that was a lot of fun. 
Yeah, working with Josh. You know? I'm, I'm going to guess that that relationship with Josh ended up, uh, that's the way that you ended up being a, a fake shemp in Running Time, actually a movie that I really love. Oh, yeah, yeah. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in a way, you know, Josh was doing the same thing. The idea of, you know, not exactly like America's Deadly Home Video, but at least he was, you know, sort of tackling, again, this kind of continuous take format, if you can call it, or at least the, mm. perceived, the perceived one take, which is running time, which, you know, up until then, you know, was not not its own genre. I mean, now there's a whole, you know, whether it's Birdman or, you know, uh, Russian Ark or whatever. Arc, yeah. <laughs> you know, there's just a lot of that now. Um, whereas, you know, back then, you know, you'd have to point a rope, you know, and so the idea of kind of taking that concept and making it a black and white 16 millimeter crime caper was, was, was another sort of attempt, uh, at doing something new with the genre. So, yeah, I mean, even though I'm like about the size of a raisin in that movie, I do, I do have a line in response to, to Bruce Campbell, you know, or I say something that prompts Bruce Campbell's line as he's being sprung or as he's leaving prison in the opening scene so yeah that was a lot that was very cool is there a lot of pressure in in a movie with which has sort of those long takes like especially considering that your background is not as an actor it's just like are you when you're when you're in that uh the kind of line of fire there is there is there that feeling like do not screw this up oh definitely i mean i'd always heard that story about touch of evil where you know obviously the famous you know opening shot that it was all working perfectly and the reason they kept doing take after take was because the guy playing the border guard kept blowing his line which is really at the end of that very long take and it's because this poor actor was was standing there waiting as this huge you know procession of equipment and people were coming at him you know for six minutes and the pressure to just not fuck it up is definitely there although you know, even though I was such deep background in that movie, I'm sure they could have just dubbed me in there or whatever. But yeah, I mean, to a certain extent, uh, we had very long takes in America's Deadly Home Video too, because again, trying to maintain this idea of of a continuous documentary experience, at least from cut to cut, was all one, usually one shot. You know, so it had to be, so you had to block it and have the actors be able to get through several minutes of material, which is, you know, which is not typical, you know. You're always, you're always saved by your reverse or an insert or whatever it is in standard filmmaking. In this case, you know, if you blow it, you got to go back to the beginning. So, you know, it is nerve-wracking sometimes. Uh, I was wondering uh, how you uh, started your collaboration with uh, James McManus, who uh, would write, go on to write The Big Empty and appear in uh, La Cucaracha and write that as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, Jim and I met at, in, at NYU. We went to film school together. And, um, you know, I recognized his his very distinctive talent um, right away. And, you know, we ended up, you know, at, before we even graduated from film school, we actually had a job making travelogues. We got this gig where we actually traveled around the world filming these really innocuous travelogues. And... Um, and, you know, we, we just became friends and we always, you know, planned on making films together with kind of writer-director um, partnership. So we actually wrote a horror film right after film school that didn't get made. And then shortly thereafter, wrote La Cucaracha and almost got that made. We almost got La Cucaracha made with William Hurt, of all people. <laughs> and uh, and um, 
Raul Julia. That was huh. where it was going at one point. And and then it just kind of fell apart uh, for a lot of reasons. And, um, you know, ultimately it got made, I think, better with Eric and, and, the, and the rest of the cast. But um, because La Cucaracha did, didn't get made, we sort of said, well, let's write something that we can definitely raise the money to do something smaller. And so then we wrote The Big Empty and actually made that first. And once that got some traction, it helped us get the the financing for Luke Roger with Eric. So it was sort of a weird, a weird sort of process. But, uh, but Jim has, you know, Jim and I always had this very kind of special, you know, it's like when you're, you know, it's like when you, you know, it's either like a marriage or your best friend, you have this, you know, like you speak each other's language. And that's something you're always looking for, you know, when you're making films, because it's so hard, you know, as you know, you get stuff made and there's so many obstacles. It's nice to have somebody you know, with you, you know, as you kind of soldier through the whole experience, uh, you know. Was the idea, was the idea during that development of La Cucaracha that, that, that uh, James was always going to play the Lewis Graves role in that movie? Well, I, I, you know, I can't remember, not necessarily, because I actually remember meeting with, um, God, now I'm totally blanking. I can't believe I'm, uh, I'm blanking on him. Uh, and he's famous. He's in everything. He's in Clavito's Ways and Boogie Nights. Um, why am I forgetting Luis his name? Guzman. Yeah, Luis Guzman. So I met, I met Luis Guzman in New York when we were, st- were trying to put it together initially. And, and at the time, Luis was Luis. So in the early drafts, he was a local. He wasn't mm. uh, an expatriate. Mm. But as it, um, as it developed, I think it, it changed to be an American. And at one point, we were actually talking to Richard Lewis about it. Um, and that didn't work for whatever reason. And then ultimately, it was just like, Jim, you know, why don't you play it? He knew the part. You know, he'd obviously written the part. And and so, you know, he jumped in. So, yeah, I haven't thought about that in a long time. But that's sort of, it wasn't it wasn't always going to be Jim right from the beginning. It's interesting to think about that because, I mean, I think he's terrific in the role. He's really, a, it's such a memorable part anyway because it's such a three-dimensional type character that you just don't normally see, even in the crime films of that of that time. And, and that's one yeah. of the things I like about uh, the films of yours that I've seen where the morality isn't so black and white, which of course comes from that noir background as well. Right. I, I was wondering about uh, Michael Pena has a uh, one of his earliest acting roles in a small part in La Cucaracha. Yeah. Did you get a sense uh, even back then that he, he was uh, destined for big things? No, not really. I mean, he was just a really good young actor who was very comfortable, you know, and, and you know, he obviously needed to speak Spanish, you know, which he did. And um, uh, I think my casting director just said, I know a young kid who's really good and he's just coming up and why don't you look at him? And, and, you know, I knew right away he was, he was, you know, right. He had a certain, he had a sweet demeanor, which was, I, you know, was for me what I sort of saw in that part. Uh, it's almost like Eric, you know, he doesn't have many friends in that movie. So for a very brief, you know, period of recuperation, there's one guy there who sort of has his back and, um, but no, I really, you know, I really didn't think so. It's actually kind of an anomaly because, you know, there aren't that many young Latino actors that become big movie stars mm. anymore. I mean, even back in the day, you know, you had Ricardo Montalban and Fernando <laughs> Thomas and, you know, Desi Arnaz and they, that's it, you know, and, and, um, you know, later, you know, someone like Andy Garcia and so forth, but it's not like the chances 
of becoming a major movie star if you're, you know, an ethnic actor is, is you know, it's hard enough. So I wasn't surprised, but because I always thought he was talented, but it, it's been very cool watching him, you know, become huge. You know, everything. Now, La Cucaracha, it, I mean, it's a very sweaty-looking production. Yeah. Uh, was that a look that you were... I, I, I think I described it uh, to, to Liam. I described it as spaghetti western noir when, when you're watching it. It, it. Was that a look that you and, and Sean Moore were trying to get on set? Uh, is there a movie that you were trying to emulate in terms yeah, of its that's look? Very, that's very cool. I like that very much. I think that, that, you know, it, yeah. I mean, I think somebody wrote once, which I loved... Um, that was it was like a film noir made by Sergio Leone, so it's the same <laughs> sentiment. Um, yeah, I mean, there is a sort of south of the border noir mini genre anyway, where you're dealing with Americans sort of getting you know into trouble mm-hmm. south of the border. Obviously, Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia is probably the you know the greatest influence, and the you know it's, and it's definitely that's a sweaty, that's a sweaty, grimy movie, and. Um, I was thinking so of Sierra Madre as well, where it, it, you know everyone just seems to be caked in sweat yeah. in that movie. Treasure of the Sierra Madre is another one. There's another kind of lesser-known one called The Bribe, mm. um, with Robert Taylor and and uh, Charles Lawton, and Ride the Pink Horse with Robert Montgomery. Mm-hmm. Speaking of Lady in the Lake, is another one. You know where it's this, it's noir, but it's applied to this very specific, you know, um, world. So yeah, all those, all that kind of atmosphere was definitely in my mind. Um, and I like that kind of combination of what would ordinarily be strictly a daytime Western look at night. You know, you don't really get that. So that's, I think, that combination is where you get that you get that vibe. You know, it's sweaty, but it's still shadowy. Um, and that's sort of the, yeah, that was definitely the look, you know, we were going for. I mean, going back to what I was saying earlier, that's really why I love the thriller genre, because regardless of whether it's Mexico or New York or whatever, wherever you, LA, wherever you set it, it's just a, it's the atmosphere of that genre. You know, it's so rich and you can be so uh, much more expressionistic with the lighting and your compositions because the world is sort of a nightmare. So um, that, that lends itself to that genre, whereas you really can't do that kind of shooting in a straight drama because it would just get in the way. It wouldn't be, it wouldn't be suitable, you know? Well, you know, so sorry, I stepped in there. No, not at all. Just, just, you're right. I mean, just the ability that a thriller allows you for that kind of stylized realism where you can still take the plot seriously and you can still take the characters very seriously, but that stylized yeah. element can kind of be laid on top of that and can hint to larger themes in the movies as a whole. Definitely. Definitely. I mean, I think the other thing we were going for with that movie was really a monochromatic, look which is something i really try to do with the big empty too and if you know if i had my choice like a lot of filmmakers i would have i would have shot probably the cucaracha and the big empty in black and white just because so many black and white movies influenced uh both of those films but you know because distribution is the way it is nobody wants to distribute a black and white movie or at least back then it was even harder Mm. the idea was to try to design the movie color wise so that you were dealing with you know, monochromatic tones, you know, a lot of ambers and, and, um, browns and olives and things that obviously that play into the landscape of Mexico anyway, and get away from primary colors and things like that. So that also affected the overall sort of tone of the thing. Can I, can I ask a question about that in the sense of the distribution of the film? What was the release of this? Like, uh, it's, it's one of the movies that we've watched where, 
I don't really have a sense for what it was like when it came out. I have a sense for what it's like now watching it and really enjoying it, but I have no historical sense for what it was like when you released well, it. No, it's, it's, it's funny you mention that because, you know, I think I don't feel this way anymore about theatrical distribution, but, you know, I went to film school in the mid-80s and, you know, it kind of came up on the tail end of the indie sort of boom. And, right. and I think every filmmaker has this dream that somehow your film is legitimized if it's on the big screen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now that's, you know, utter nonsense because it really doesn't matter. I mean, it's more important that people see it regardless of how big it is. But um, at the time, you know, a very small uh, brand new distributor picked it up after it played a bunch of film festivals, I think right after it won at Austin. And, you know, that was sort of the dream where, oh, right on, somebody's going to release it theatrically, somebody's going to pay for prints and advertising. But they really weren't terribly experienced and their plan um, and I think you guys mentioned it. Well, I know you guys mentioned it on your on the previous podcast. Was you know the 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 marketing approach was all wrong, and that's kind of right. part of the course, not only with independent films, with it, but with a lot of films. I was just I just watched the Italian Job for the millionth time last night with my wife at a outdoor screening, and I was you know I love that movie. And I was looking doing some research on it today, and I realized that uh, I found out that it kind of bombed in the in, in the states. And part of that problem was the poster for the American poster for the Italian job, if you Google it, is like nothing of what the movie is. It's like the poster of it makes it look like this kind of death-wishy, skeevy, you know, it promises to be this brutally violent sort of, right. you know, and it's not, that's not, as you know, if you've seen the movie, that's it's the most light, mm-hmm. you know, airy movie, breezy movie. And I felt the same way about like the Cucaracci, you know, they did... They did really dumb marketing in an attempt to, I think they were trying to appeal to a Latin market, mm. which, is, which is like, it's not really exclusively for the Latin market. And, uh, and also they did the dumb Eric Roberts with the gun thing. <laughs> um, and, you know, you talk about the video, the, um, the DVD poster and the DVD art is actually light years better than what the print advertising was which was really horrible and i remember eric actually calling me when the when the when the poster in the paper came out and he was like oh my god they fucked this up he said it's just it's just another dumb eric roberts with a gun poster Mm. and uh he was upset because he was really proud of the movie and didn't want it uh mis misperceived or or, um which is you know hard when you're because you you know every filmmaker would tell you they have like Unless you're Stanley Kubrick, you have no influence on marketing. They just like live in their own bubble, and they don't want to hear from pain in the ass filmmakers about, you know, what the marketing campaign should be. So, yeah, it was frustrating. It was a, it was a frustrating, you know, and it's almost impossible to make your money in a theatrical um, situation unless you spend a zillion dollars on commercials and mm-hmm. other advertising. And they didn't really. They just kind of put it in a few theaters and hope for the best. And that's, that's not, you know, that, that's why it didn't really pop. Um, the only person that saw it of note, well, two really saw it. One is a critic, John Patterson used to be with the LA weekly. And the other one was Roger Ebert and Roger Ebert saw it when it played in one theater in Chicago and gave it a really nice review. And that was like, for me, a huge thing because, you know, I, you know, admired 
Roger Ebert and it mattered to me, which is silly because it shouldn't, but it at the time it sort of mattered to me like I you know, you want Roger Ebert like a parent to like your movie. You know? Yeah. So but it pretty much died, you know, as a theatrical um experience. Uh it was only until it kind of came out on DVD that people started to see it at all. It must be kind of extra frustrating to have gotten this positive review. It kind of legitimized. I'm sure you already thought that this was a good uh, project when you're finished. But once you've watched it through the editing process, I'm sure that you lose a little bit of that perspective. And then you put it out there and you're like, this, you're being told, this is a great project. It must add that extra level of frustration when you're like, look, how come you can't get this in, in front of people's eyes so they can also see how good it is? Right. You know, that's that's sort of the thing. You know, and I tell my students this all the time, it's, you know, I, I really, you can go into, and I know I did go into a very deep depression if what you hope for in terms of the results, the kind of external or exterior results of what you've done don't match up what you have in your mind. And, you know, it's like, I think I, you know, I took it very hard because, you know, this was already my third sort of feature. And every time, like I said, is you're going out there hoping that you're going to sort of smash down these invisible gates that allow you to make more movies. So, yeah, I knew I was, you know, I knew I was um, happy with the film and I knew that it had merit. So, yeah, you know, I, I would be lying if I didn't say a part of me really wanted this to do, to be seen by more people at the time or, or do more for my career. And, um, but I think in retrospect, it's, you know, I think it's very important for filmmakers to divorce themselves from what the outcome is in terms of box office or even critical response. It should not matter. It should not matter who says it's great or who says it stinks. You have to be the you're the judge of your own work. And I've had, and that's all that matters in the end. I mean, I've had other films that I've made have much, you know, make more money and get much more acclaim. And they're shittier movies. You know what I mean? I, I know that they're shittier movies. You know, like like the attention I got for Mega Shark versus Giant Octopus was, was absurd, you know, for me, because that movie, you know, is flawed, you know, in so many ways, not just because of what I did, but also because of what, you know, the producers did and so forth. Mm-hmm. And that movie, everybody heard about it. You know, and I was constantly, in some cases, people were saying, like, well, that's like, that must be his first movie. And I was like, well, wait a minute, there's three others that are way better than this. Why don't you look at that? But you can't, so you can't control, you know, who sees it or or, or what it's going to do or what the response is going to be. And um, I think it's important for people to remember that, you know, when they make their movie, that you're the most important sort of critic of that, you know, and not to sell yourself short if it doesn't pan out, you know, the way the way you want it to. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And especially with the knowledge that, you know, th- these things will exist outside of you for however long film as a medium exists. So right. there's always going to be people who are going to find this work and appreciate it for what it is and appreciate it for the talent brought to it and be inspired by it. So you never know how it's going to continue to exist in the world. And honestly, you'd probably drive yourself mad if you had to think about that all the time. Absolutely. And, that, and you're absolutely right. And it's, you know, it's because of people like yourselves that are, you know, talking about it that, 
that that matters to filmmakers. It matters to me because it does, you know, it does breathe life into something that, you know, might otherwise be dormant or, you know, and certainly, um, now it's easier than ever to make people aware. Um, you know, I mean, I end up sounding like some old, you know, back when there wasn't an internet, but that's the truth. You know, there wasn't, wasn't the ability to get the word out the same way. So, um, I'm grateful, you know, I'm grateful that, that, you know, these films are resurrected to a certain degree, you know, later in life. So going back to Eric Roberts, since this is an Eric Roberts related podcast, uh, how did Eric first get involved with the movie and what made him write for that, that uh, part of Walter Poole? Right. Well, I think it was, you know, you always start with the practical, um, you know, every, every director has in his mind, this ideal of who should play whatever part. And nine times out of 10, that, that person is out of reach. In the case of Luca Garacha, I was always practically minded. So I didn't really know who I wanted to be Walter. Um, but I knew who the character was and what he should be. And so when we were green lit, the casting director said, well, here's a list of actors that we can afford. <laughs> you know, that's basically what it was like, forget about your dream cast. Here are the actors that we can actually get who on this list appeals to you. And Eric just leapt off the page because you know, I was a fan, a huge fan of of King of the Gypsies and Runaway Train and Pope of Greenwich Village and certainly Star 80 and Raggedy Man. And I just admired him as an actor um, and saw all his movies when I was younger and when I was in film school. So to me, he was the most legitimate actor with, the, with you know, with the most powerful instrument. And... Uh, and so, you know, I, there was no question. He, he was the one we went to. And, uh, you know, it was just blind luck that he was into the script and, and available, you know. It's such an intense performance. And, it you know, around that time period, and this was yeah. the start of, I mean, by now, anyone who listens to this show knows that Eric Roberts does really an obscene number of projects per year. Just, yeah. just a huge, I, huge number. Yeah, it's just, it's just, you know, buckets full of movies. Uh, <laughs> a varying quality, I think we could, uh, we could uh, you know, safely say. I think even he would agree well, with, with that. I, absolutely. I mean, I think Eric is just one of those actors who loves to work. And, you know, to a certain extent, you know, he should be credited for that because, you know, he's a, he knows he's alive, as we all are, when you're on set. And so he seizes every single opportunity. And he can't be just for the money because some of those projects are so low budget, you know, they, they can't be paying him very much. So, um, yeah, I think, but I think that that's the difference. I think that because he does so many films, I think at the time he saw, I think he saw, and I think he'd tell you this too, this was an opportunity to do a little bit more, uh, dimensional character work than he, you know, was getting to do, you know, he was, playing a lot of bad guys um and not that they were two-dimensional but you know he has so much range that i think the part of walter and the gugaracha afforded this opportunity to get back to the kind of work he was doing early in his career so i knew that he he took the script seriously and after i talked with him you know i i pretty much i'm pretty sure i convinced him that i was deadly serious about this not being you know just a revenge movie you know, or just a, uh, 
you know, a guy with a gun in Mexico. And so that's, that was sort of the attitude we went into it with. And that's why I think his performance is so good because, you know, he really committed, committed to that part. You know, in, in some ways it brings me back to his performance in something like The Pope of Greenwich Village where he has that kind of – he's kind of that fast-talking, slightly sleazy, at least on the edge, and very much someone who's in over his head. Uh, and I'm not saying that it's the same sort of character exactly, but you see that it really plays to his strengths. And I really like seeing him – like you said, he was playing a lot of villains. And I think it's safe – you know, I think it's actually fair to say that some of those villain roles were fairly two-dimensional. But here you can see that he's really taking advantage of the opportunity to sink his teeth – into the role. And speaking of sinking his teeth into the role, I, yeah. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about Liam's favorite scene from the movie, and one of yeah. mine as well, where uh, where the uh, titular cockroach yeah. ends up in Eric's mouth. Uh, yeah. <laughs> how, how was that realized on set, and did it uh, come to life in the way that you were hoping for? Definitely. It was better than I had hoped for. I mean, you know, I, 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 you know I'm an animal rights person, mm-hmm. and I try to use... If, if you know, if you try not to use animals on set. And in the Cucaracha, there's actually a lot of animal action. There's you know goats and chickens, and in this case, this cockroach, which was this, if I'm remembering correctly, from the cockroach wrangler who brought the cockroaches, um, this African sort of water bug. So you know, I definitely picked the fattest, <laughs> most theatrical um, cockroach I could find. Um, and, you know, the way they controlled it is they used straw. He, the, the Wrangler had these kind of paper straws, and he was just off camera. And what he would do is just blow very gently air to kind of steer the cockroach to go where he wanted it to go. And as you see in the movie, Eric is totally game to have this big, you know, slimy cockroach crawl all <laughs> over his face. So, you know, for a good 45 minutes, we shot cockroach all over Eric's face. And... It took a while, but I knew, first of all, I knew I wasn't really going to, you know, he was no way he was going to eat the cockroach. Even if, he was, even if he wanted to, I wouldn't have let him because I, you know, we're not going to have him eat a real cockroach. not going to hurt the cockroach. So I knew I was going to do a gummy or prop substitution, which is what it was. The cockroach that he actually bites into was really, in effect, a gummy cockroach that was injected with, like, custard so that when he bit on it, it would shoot that horrible oh yeah that's so gross you know, yellow goo out of its out of its rear quarters you know out of its ass basically um what i really needed was the moment of it crawling across his lips which was easier said than done and took a while and then what i had directed eric to do was if and when this magic moment happened that the cockroach happened to crawl across his mouth that he was just to start to go for it, just open his mouth and gesture like he was going for it. That's all I needed was just the beginning of that action because once I had that, I had a cut point where I could turn around and do an over-the-top shot and substitute the gummy roach and then have him replicate the action and just bite down on the on the candy roach, so to speak. So that's how it was done. And, um, you know, I, I'm so accustomed to seeing it, I don't even see it anymore. But my wife still, you know, and she's pretty tough can't watch can't watch it you know it's just too gross for her and i'm sure it's you know it's meant to be a totally disgusting moment so 
Oh, hopefully it works. <laughs> I, I I made that animated GIF of it when the uh, original episode came out, specifically with the idea that, you know, something to, yeah, it's of course revolting, but it's also very eye-catching. And what you really yeah. notice about it is how that editing point works so well. Uh, that, that, yeah. that, that cut happens to the point where you could easily believe, as Mike White mentioned in that episode, that, that Eric had maybe a, a, a Nicolas Cage and Vampire's Kiss moment right. where he decides to just go for it and eat a real cockroach. Yeah. Yeah, I think I learned how to do that. It's funny. Uh, Martin Brest, you know, who went on to make such great movies like Midnight Run and mm-hmm. Beverly Hills Cop, he did a short film in uh, when he was at NYU that they showed us when I was a student called Hot Dogs for Gauguin. And it's a comedy where a very young Danny DeVito tries to blow up the Statue of Liberty in order to get a Hindenburg-type photograph <laughs> of the accident that he can sell. And the whole movie is geared toward this. Is he going to actually blow it up? And one of the things they did, what Martin Brest did, was he built a really beautiful model of the statue and photographed it throughout the movie from this very particular set angle so that you had it in your mind that that was the real Statue of Liberty. So that when he actually blows up the model toward the end of the movie, it's the exact same composition that you've established in your mind as the real thing. And what I'm getting at is if you look at the cockroach moment carefully, you'll see that the shot that precedes the over-the-top shot is a profile of the cockroach, uh, the real cockroach on his lips Mm -hmm. and Eric gesturing. And then it cuts very briefly to the -the over-the-top close-up of the gummy roach. And then it cuts back. It cuts back to the profile, the same exact profile, only then Eric is chewing the gummy and i think it's the psychology of saying in your mind that in the profile you saw it actually moving and then you see the profile again and he's chewing and you just your mind makes that leap that the exact composition i don't know if i'm making sense but that's that's part of what i think helps helps to sell the moment um so yeah in a way it had to it had to work because it's the title of the movie, and it's the really the, <laughs> the huge turning point. So I was really lucky that we had such a cooperative roach. And that Eric was so game, you know. So many actors would have been like, fuck that, I'm not having a cockroach caught on my face. You know? so, uh, that, actually, yeah, he, that actually begs the question, uh, how was Eric as a collaborator on set? Since, I mean, he, again, he's in what, 95% of the movie. He's yeah. obviously the show here. What was he like yeah. to work with? Well, you know, he was great. I mean, he was, you know, it was an 18-day shoot, so it was it was tough. There's a lot. He's in, like you said, he's in virtually every scene. Um, but you know, I think one of the reasons why Eric, you know, is he's such a professional is, you know, you become a professional by doing it, hmm. you know, and you do, you know, when someone like him does it so much, you be, you kind of reach the highest tier of professionalism. So there was no. There was no circumstance, there was no scene that was, you know, daunting for him. Um, you know, I, th- I remember at one point, you know, he has a lot of heavy, long monologues, uh, particularly that scene, um, you know, with Lourdes, where he sort of reveals, you know, how he came to be where he is. And I think I remember at one point, it was it was actually quite charming, where he was off to the side, sort of mumbling to himself like wow there's a lot of dialogue you know and like almost like he was afraid he wouldn't get it down but of course you know he had it down in spades and so it really wasn't it wasn't a moment where i 
you know, we weren't really working as a team. And, uh, you know, we became friends after that because of it, because it was such a, you know, it was such a, uh, a lovely, you know, working relationship. That, that actually does beg the question, Jack, uh, from having worked with him and having known him personally, would yeah. you agree with the, the, the kind of theory that is the title of this podcast that Eric Roberts is the fucking man? Yes, I, I I would absolutely agree that he is the fucking man, and for many for many reasons. I know that you worked with Adam West on uh, the film Monster Island, and I was wondering right. if you had any anecdotes about him since uh, he he very unfortunately passed away very recently. Right. Well, I'm I'm sure you guys heard the ADR, right? Was that did you guys hear the the ADR that I? Come on, let's go. I mean, do you guys do you guys see that? I'm not sure if we did. Oh my God! Well, that's the thing, you guys. If you, um, yeah, birth, birth movies, death actually ran. Uh, an old friend of mine, Mike Gingold from Fangoria, formerly of Fangoria, now mm-hmm. Rue Moore, um, did an article on 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 this particular story. Um, so if you haven't heard it, I might as well just tell you. Um, Adam was like, you know, Adam was again one of just like Eric. He was one of these guys that, you know, I admired as a film nut. So being able to work with him uh, was like, you know, another one of these like dream moments that rarely happen. And it was, you know, it was a rare case where I actually I actually wrote that part for Adam, even though I never do that. And he said yes. So and Adam was exactly as, you know, you wanted him to be. He was just this lovely man who was just had a great sense of humor Um he was just so warm to the kids, the other you know, younger cast members. But he was also like, he was like a real guy. You know, he would, he would, he would gather at the, you know, the Sudden Place Hotel in Vancouver, where we, you know, everybody stays when they're making a movie there. And you know, he'd sit at the bar at the end of a shoot day with the, you know, with the young cast members, and he would toast like with a glass of bourbon. He would just raise his glass and say, "Fuck it." That's how he would, you know. And it was this, it was totally non-cynical. It was almost like. A lesson to the actors like don't worry about what you did today it's over put it to bed tomorrow's another day um you know and as i've said before like you know he called me jp you know which was this total you know old hollywood like jp i love the script jp um which you know and you know i was i fell in love with him from that moment on and um but you know the thing that you got to hear is if you go to youtube and you just put in Adam West, come on, let's go. It'll make perfect sense because after the movie was wrapped, he went back to Idaho, um, and I needed one line of ADR, which was this line, come on, let's go. And he wasn't about to fly all the way back to Vancouver where we were dubbing the movie to do the ADR. So he recorded it locally and sent it to us. And what he sent is a genuine piece of art. It's not merely three or four takes of come on let's go it is a avalanche of every conceivable way of reading that line without him stopping and it's not edited and i kept it as kind of a prized possession in my closet for the last you know 14 years um I don't know why I didn't really release it publicly because it's not an embarrassment. It's a beautiful, mm-hmm. wonderful thing that this speaks to his, you know, kind of the artist, the crazy artist that he was. 
and finally when he died you know i was so sad and i really wanted people to hear this thing so i dug it up and posted it so yeah look for adam west come on let's go on youtube and you'll just play it and it's like i guarantee you it's like one of the weirdest minutes of anything that you'll ever hear i'll just sort of leave it at that we'll, we'll make sure to uh, to link that in our show notes uh, I just want to ask you just quickly, uh, Jack, I'm a massive fan of Paul F. Tompkins, um, and I noticed that uh, Janie Haddad uh, Tompkins, his wife, is in Some Guy Who Kills People, and that you worked with the both of them in the uh, T is for Tantrum short that you made yeah. with the potential yeah. to be in the ABCs of Death. How did that come about? Um, it was strictly because, you know, I'm trying to remember. I think, um, yeah, Janie was... Um, yeah, she was she was great in Somebody Who Kills People, mm-hmm. and I can't remember if at the time, you know what, I think we might have actually tried to get Paul, yeah, in fact, that's true, we'd actually tried to get Paul in Some Guy Who Kills People, um, and there was just a scheduling conflict, and he couldn't do it. So both Ryan um, and I wanted to work with Paul anyway, so, you know, after we had that experience with Janie, it was just kind of like, well, let's see if we can, you know, do something else with them. So when we decided to do the ABCs of Death thing, we just went to them and said, how about you guys, you know, as this couple in this crazy short? And um, and that was how it kind of came about. And, you know, it was fun for them because they got to play, you know, they got to play a couple. And, you know, they obviously had this natural chemistry, so that, that benefited the piece. And, you know, so it was just, you know, it was just an opportunity to work with, with him and her again, that, you know, just happy that that happened. <laughs> I, I, I was wondering, uh, before we finish up here, Jack, uh, I was wondering, is there a dream project that you've been trying to get off the ground that, that maybe because of whatever elements just haven't come together to allow it to happen? I remember reading with an interview with you uh, semi-recently, I don't know how long ago it was actually uh, done, uh, and you were talking in that interview about a, pro- a project called Shotgun Wedding that sounded absolutely amazing in your description. <laughs> Is that something yeah. that, that you're still looking to try to uh, to get made? Yeah, we're actually, it's funny you mentioned that, we're actually really close. Um, we've been kind of on the verge of making that film, which is, you know, the way I've sort of been, it's only half-jokingly describing it as, as a pro-gay marriage, lesbian, shoot 'em up anti-Trump movie. <laughs> uh, Sold! <laughs> yeah, it's just a, you know, it's a pro-gay marriage, anti-Trump, lesbian, shoot 'em up is what it is. And it's, you know, I've been trying to make this movie for many years, and it's had kind of different iterations. And um, so we're finally close to, to making it now, and I, you know... Fingers crossed the money actually comes through and I'm, you know, hopefully this year I'll actually get a chance to, to lens it. Um, so that's definitely one of them. And there's another smaller project that is really in many ways, even closer to my heart. It's, it's, it's what I call an animal rights noir. (laughs) And, uh, it's in effect, it's a kind of a return to the private eye genre, which is, you know, something that I, did with the big empty way back in 1997 but with a very specific sort of animal rights story component um and that's something that i'm thinking about crowdfunding which is something i've never done because it is i don't think it's a movie any certainly no studio or even small independent would ever finance because it's such a collision of genres and elements that you know it's it's 
it's you know it's violent and it's sexy and it's dark and it's funny and it also has a lot of animals in it and it's just it's no there's no way that's a traditional conventional movie so it's called search and rescue and it's a movie that i i really would like to do right after shotgun wedding if that happens you know if that happens soon so yeah that's what's going on well i definitely you know we definitely want to support that crowdfunding effort however we possibly can at that time and certainly it sounds fascinating and i the, the very idea of you returning to a film noir type topic believe me that that makes me very excited Jack, Jack, is there a way that uh, listeners of this show can uh, support your work or support you? Is there any way even through social media, anything like that? Oh, sure. I mean, you know, you can always just friend me on Facebook. It's just my name. Um, And, uh, you know, I'm on Twitter. Uh, And, you know, I'm so, you know, I rarely, I rarely tweet, (laughs) but I'm, I'm, I'm at, and this is really stupid. I'm at, well, it's not stupid. It's just a silly name that we've my wife and i have had you know for years um it's at who's i can't even say this because my voice is so shot it's at who's puss which is w-h-o-s p is in peter u s is in sam s is in sam who's puss at who's puss is my twitter um and that's another way but certainly through facebook you can just you don't have to bother with that just just friend me on Facebook. It's probably the easiest way. And I want to, uh, on a personal note, uh, not only thank you for taking the time to talk to us and to talk about Eric Roberts and your career, Jack, but also I just want to talk to the audience here and, and just say, look, if you get an opportunity, you go on Amazon, you go in your, your uh, local <laughs> place where you purchase DVDs, uh, definitely check out uh, def- well, definitely check out all of Jack Perez's work, but it certainly check out Some Guy Who Kills People, which is just an incredible movie. La Cucaracha, of course, which I think we've raved about enough, and The Big Empty. And really, if you get a chance, uh, check out the DVD release of America's Deadliest Home Video. It is uh, really quite something. And also, also, one of those movies where when you watch it, you can see how other movies took that same material and, and ran with it, and, uh, and that same sort of, of uh, focus is something that people are still sticking with today. But Jack, I love your work. Love uh, love being able to support whatever you're doing next. And again, thank you so much for talking to us. No, not at all, guys. It's been a real pleasure. Um, and you've been, in, you know, it's been really gratifying. And, and you've been enormously complimentary. And I'm, I'm absolutely flattered in any time. So thank you so much. And uh, I appreciate it. Roberts is the fucking man. Episode number 54 is in the bag. I want to give, again, a massive thank you to Jack Perez for talking to us about his entire career and La Cucaracha. Very complimentary man. Very talented artist. I think I mentioned, it might have been off 
uh, era. Actually, maybe I mentioned it right before the first break that I was actually very intimidated by that interview. But he was a very nice, relaxed boy. Could not have been more uh, more gregarious in regards to his work. Very honest as well. Just exactly the kind of thing you want to see uh, in an interview. What did you think of him, Liam? Very pleasant. Um, sort of self-effacing a little bit in, in a way, which I, I understand. But uh, uh, I don't know. He kind of gave us a bit of an insight, I felt like, into the not just his process, but sort of you know filmmaking in general, or at least his experience with it. And uh, I don't know. I liked hearing about what Eric Roberts was like, and what and and honestly, what Adam West was like. <laughs> uh, that was almost as interesting and and you know kind of charming to hear about. You know, he's the kind of director because he's done so much and his career has gone all over the place that I really could have asked questions with for all night. And uh, yeah. <laughs> I had to cut myself off a little bit to make sure that we weren't all sitting here for the rest of the night. Liam, uh, where can people find your work on the Internet? Well, uh, I would specifically like to uh, plug um, uh, not just Cinepunks.com, uh, which everyone should go to. But uh, we just posted a um, sort of uh, reflections from the staff on the passing of George A. Romero. And um, I just think there's some really great uh, writing in there. Um, you know, there's probably some bad writing, too. But uh, there were there are a few there are a few uh, reflections that kind of got me a little emotional. Just people talking about the effect that he had. And so I just want to hype that I tend to hype the shows more. And yes, you should listen to all of our podcasts. But um, I don't know. I just really. uh I really felt like the writing on that one was pretty great and maybe not necessarily like because we're the greatest writers, but because people really shared important things. I mean, it's, I've read some of the work that's been on Cinepunks regarding George A. Romero and it is wonderfully written. And I think you should be very proud to have that on your site. Uh, on a personal note, uh, I mentioned it briefly in my latest No Budget Nightmares episode, but you know, George A. Romero really changed the way that I watched movies. Uh, when I first yep. saw Dawn of the Dead, it changed the, the expectations that I had for horror movies and it kind of raised those expectations and made me realize that you could have a socially conscious horror movie. It really, you know, it really evolved my taste. Uh, and, and I, uh, you know, I attribute that directly to George Romero and not just Dawn of the Dead, but his other work as well, particularly things like Day of the Dead and Martin uh, and Night Riders, even in Creepshow. Um, so it's, it's, you know, it's so nice to read all the fond memories that people have of him, though still very tragic that we, uh, we lost him. Um, Speaking of No Budget Nightmares, you can find that podcast over at NoBudgetPodcast.com. You can find me on Twitter at Doug underscore Tilly. That's T-I-L-L-E-Y. You can, of course, find more about Eric Roberts is the Fucking Man on Twitter as well at E-R-I-T-F-M or go over to EricRobertsIsTheMan.com. Why don't you subscribe? Check out some of our older episodes. There's lots of great stuff in our archives there. You can also find both No Budget Nightmares and Eric Roberts is the Fucking Man on Facebook. All you need to do is do a search for either of those podcast names. Maybe do a search for Eric Roberts is the Man on Facebook to pull that one up. But with that said, Liam, I think we're just about done here. We've had a long night, a long interview. I think it's time for us to take a little rest before we get back to the Eric Roberts minds. What do you think? Sounds good to me. Sounds good. Liam, get some rest. We'll be back in two weeks with more Eric Roberts goodness. Good night, everybody. Come on, let's go. 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 Come on, let's go.
Come on, let's go. Come on, let's go.